Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. We have another great conversation for you today, and I'm actually taking a step back since I was able to win Phil Katz to talk to Lowell Zeta, who just rejoined our team. So as always, I'm keeping the entry short and open the stage to Phil and Lowell. Thank you for joining me today and talking the cure. Thanks, Julius. Um, yeah, this is Phil Katz, and I'm happy to be with you here today and even happier to be talking to my colleague and my good friend, Lowell Zeta. Lowell was an associate in our firm, a senior associate, starting in 2015. And uh, he came to us after he'd been practicing law for a while and had been getting advanced degrees in healthcare law, was doing a great job. And then an opportunity came along and he left us for the Food and Drug Administration. He took a position as senior counselor to the uh, new commissioner then, uh, Commissioner Hahn, and spent basically a year there operating very broadly and at very high level and uh, and is now back at the firm. We're happy to have him back as a person and as a really good lawyer and as a friend, but also as somebody who now brings a broader perspective from having operated at FDA side by side with the commissioner and with a number of high ranking officials um, over the better part of a year. And, and um, what we were hoping to do today is just spend a few minutes talking with Lowell about what it is that he learned while he was there and what it is he's bringing back to Hogan Lovells. And I think perhaps most importantly for our clients, what it is he thinks companies should be thinking about, those who are in front of, of FDA should be thinking about in terms of how FDA operates and in particular how FDA operates given the learnings uh, of the past year plus with regard to COVID. Let me start, Lowell, by just asking broadly, okay, you went, you did a whole bunch of really interesting things at FDA. Give me, give me a top, whatever, two, three, four takeaway. What, what, are, the, what are the big takeaways that you have from this experience at FDA? Sure. Well, well, thanks, thanks, Phil, and it's it's great to to sit down with you and and talk about my experience and 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 coming back and 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 hap real happy to to be back. Um, the, I think a, a couple of things or a few things that I, that that I've taken as takeaways. Certainly, this past year, given the the ongoing pandemic, just a really greater appreciation for what it means to for for the FDA to make decisions based on science um, and data, especially you know, as our understanding of the science is, is evolving. And I think also just by perspective of uh, how decisions are made within the agency, operations, and also relationships with, you know, sister agencies within HHS, interactions with the administration and, and the Hill, I think, um, helped kind of inform my perspective of how you know, policy is made with respect to public health. Let me follow up on that for a little bit. One of the things that you just talked about was the intersectionality, if you will, between FDA, HHS, CMS, Capitol Hill, other parts of the administration. Uh, and, and, and I'll confess, a lot of the work that we do is very FDA focused. But I know that we also work, for example, here at, at Hogan Levels, we work with our government relations practice with regard to things going on on the Hill. T talk to me, if you will, a little bit about how the Hill intersects with FDA. Because it's been my experience that if you're talking about an individual company with an individual issue, members of Congress sometimes need to be very careful about how, how much they'll intercede. But sometimes you're talking about an individual company. Sometimes you're talking about broader policy. Can you talk to me a little bit about the ways that the Hill intersects with FDA? And flowing from that, what are the lessons then that you think companies can take about how and when to bring Capitol Hill into the picture. 
Sure. There are a couple of things that come to mind, and it really sort of based on FDA's really productive relationship with with folks on the Hill. You know, the Senate Health Committee, the House Energy and Commerce um, Subcommittee uh, on Health are, are very um, active and interested on, on FDA regulatory issues. You know, from congressional hearings to requesting information on on issues that come to their mind that whether it you know affects their constituents or is an issue that's coming across their desk as part of the committee you know the interaction there whether it's initiated um, through you know industry or class of industry or public health issue that that comes up otherwise there's a lot of interaction between the committees or there can be um, and individual members and and certain you know components of of, of the agency and another area is providing technical assistance to the committees or um, anyone on the Hill with respect to you know, potential legislation on certain issues. Um, questions can come up that you know, are better served by having some insight from you know, subject matter experts within the agency. And so I think it's, it's for, for, for my perspective of coming out and, and coming back to the firm, it's been really interesting and, and I sort of see it as an additional tool in kind of our toolkit of opportunities to help, you know, our clients, industry, companies make an impact, whether it's one-to-one communications on a specific product issue with the agency or perhaps more broadly with a, with a class on a certain issue that, that could, you know, involve and there could be some help through um, engagement with other components of, of the government. Um, and that's the Hill and also even sister agencies within HHS and, and, and other components. Okay. Okay. So, so one of the things that I think I hear you saying is that not just on broader policy, but often with regard to individual products, there is a role for for Capitol Hill to play. There's an appropriate role. But, and, and, and I ask it that way because I worry sometimes that once the Hill gets involved and Office of Legislative Affairs gets involved, everything slows down and becomes uh, more complicated. But but am I correct in hearing you say that there that there are times that with regard to a particular company and a particular product, there's a constructive involvement of Capitol Hill that's available? I think so, yes, and and I think the 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 constructive is 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 operative is the operative term. I think it's it's part of the strategic tools that you have and utilizing it, leveraging it in the most impactful way. I think yes, I think it can be a very um, effective uh, piece of a broader a broader puzzle. So so look, you came to FDA right about when all of the COVID um, stuff was was happening. And you were there, as I said, operating at, at, a, at a high level with a whole bunch of, um, of stuff going on with regard to COVID, with regard to vaccines, with regard to treatments, with regard to other the, the food supply, all kinds of things were happening that were affected by the COVID pandemic. And it changed the way that FDA operated in some ways. I mean, one only has to look at the vaccines and how quickly they came to market, recognizing they're in, at the moment, they're in the market with emergency use authorizations. They're not approved, but still how quickly they came to market is, is perhaps the signal example of how things have changed. But, but now that you've had a little bit of time to step back and reflect, what would you say are the two or three things that you think FDA is doing differently because of COVID? 
three things that I'll maybe touch on is is one, and, and you mentioned the 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 EUA process or authorizations. Just the sheer number has been, I think, more than ten times of prior EUA is issued combined. I saw some just recently some some numbers are from CDRH alone this past year. Uh, over 5,500 pre-EUA and EUA submission requests. So just the sheer number, I think, necessitated some changes internally from personnel and, and you know, I think many within the agency were finding themselves doing double time with COVID-related work and non-COVID-related work. And, and also, you know, operationally trying to you know cut out some of the white space while maintaining the integrity of the science and data but trying to be most efficient at a time where you know especially early on we had no you know test that that uh, diagnostic that had been you know issued yet and certainly well before the issuance of the vaccine so you know i think that there were some lessons and some changes made necessary, frankly, because of the, the novelty and the, the urgency of issues that, that came through because of the pandemic. And, and that's, you know, for products. And, and you mentioned also supply chain. And I think that's the entire portfolio of, of where we, you know, started seeing issues, especially early on, especially on the food side with respect to shortage or shortage concerns. I think it did highlight some opportunities for greater surveillance of and understanding sort of upstream supply chain. Um, and I think, again, that that would extend from food all the way through, you know, medical products. And then also, I think we saw some highlighted from, from benefits of innovative technologies with, you know, the evidence accelerator and, and other, you know, platforms that um, are aimed to help, you know, accelerate development by utilizing, you know, real-world evidence, real-world performance data to kind of spearhead, drive discovery through surveillance monitoring. And so I think, you know, those are some, so those are just a few of the, the lessons sort of made necessary, I think, by the pandemic, where the agency has been also focused and sort of thinking about how can we carry that forward you know, to improve our programs within the agency and certainly, you know, continue and, and strengthen its, its mission to, to protect um, public health. Yeah, I guess that, that was going to be my, my next question. So let's, let's just talk about that for a minute. So they've done all these things because they had to, because of the urgency and because of the, the crush of the additional work. How much of that stays on? How much of that is, okay, whew, we did that because we had to, but now that we got through it, let's go back to to the old normal or, or how much of it is is now going to be a new normal? I mean, hopefully not people, everybody working double time, but 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 other than that, what do you think stays on and, and what do you think are the considerations for what stays on? Yeah, well, I think for, first off is, is uh, I think the agency is still very much focused on pandemic related issues thinking about the CTAP program that was that was put into place to help um, streamline, you know, from a technical assistance perspective, but also review, I mean, 600 plus drug development programs still in planning stages. So explain, I'm sorry, explain to folks what CTAP stands for, if you would. The, the Coronavirus Treatment Acceler Accelerator Program. Gotcha. Thanks. Really, it's more of a change of, of, of resources, personnel to make sure that it's a streamlined sort of 
opportunity platform for developers to quickly receive information and 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 to you know get uh, authorization if that if it comes to that as quickly as possible. And, and so you know, the can, I, can, I, can I interrupt you just to ask sure. about that? So so how much of that works? Because it's for an EUA, where the standard for authorization is much less than the standard for approval of an NDA or a BLA, for example. Um, how much of that will continue to work if, if we're talking about EUAs, but won't necessarily allow us to move as quickly or as expeditiously or as efficiently if we're looking at a full-blown approval? Is, is there a problem with that, or do you think it's easily adjustable? I think that that's that's one thing that the agency has been really laser focused on in the drug center within the medical product center. One, you know, issuing guidances early on of of what the expectation is with respect to submission and data, which I think was was a response to a call for some some certainty um, in a time that there was less, you know, that that was really necessary, frankly. And I think the agency is is really focused on what that transition looks like um, for these products that are being distributed currently in the EUA, um, what that will look like for when it comes time to marketing approval, what that data looks like. I think that there's a continued engagement with sponsors. And I think that it's it's something that the agency is, is, is paying a lot of close attention to realizing that you know, the access to a lot of these products will be made necessary for, for longer term and, and perhaps even beyond the, 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 the PHE declaration. Okay. And, that, and look, and that's for, and that's with regard to COVID related products. Are there lessons to be learned from that that can be applied more generally to drug products, biologics, for example? Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's in, it's in part of realizing that there are some opportunities to streamline even internally. The real-time oncology review program, the, the RTOR program within the Office of the Oncology Center of Excellence, which is part of the Drug Center, as you know, I've seen some real advantages and benefits with some of their programs where being able to, to work with sponsors earlier on to review initial data sets before an actual submission and seeing and front-loading some of the CMC data, including you know manufacturing information has allowed, you know, I think the the average of, of three months earlier approval. I think some of that thinking also led into the CTAP program and how, you know, we can sort of move a restructure internally to streamline the process. I think that that we'll continue to see that sort of thinking around fit for purpose programs and whether we can sort of cut out the the white space again without you know, disturbing the integrity of the the data, but, you know, trying, you know, realizing that uh, many of these products are are, are critical and necessary to get to to patients. Um, and and by, by doing that, by thinking about some of these programs, by carrying over uh, some of these efficiencies, I, I think that, that that will, you know, benefit not just COVID-related products, but the other spaces as well that that are that are handled by the, the medical product centers. So, so part of what I think I hear you saying is that for for some of this to be carried forward is going to reflect FDA's focus on the urgency with which certain 
diseases or conditions need to be addressed or certain products need to be made available to the market. Am, am I correct in thinking that that's part of what we're going to continue to see, which, which to, to be fair, was pre-COVID, but maybe it's now post-COVID, it's on steroids. The notion of, of prioritizing based upon the public health need and therefore moving things through the agency uh, in that order or with greater urgency for some things than for others. I mean, is that, is that a fair sense of what's going on or am I misreading it? I think that that's, that's a, that's a fair sense that that's, that there's thinking along those lines. I mean, I think that there are certain areas where maybe uh, are not as well suited for a, a, a real time type review program. Um, maybe thinking about sort of like ongoing vaccine development and the data that's necessary, you know, to that that's needs that you can that you can front load, and you know the agency has made you know a lot of progress over the years with, you know, expedited programs. I think so. So that's that, that a lot of that thinking is already there. I think some of the internal processes and thinkings and successes, I guess, you know, was a silver lining of, of through this past year. Um, I think. Yeah, that the idea is to carry forward some of that around getting at sort of the, the maximizing public health impact. Gotcha. Gotcha. It, it also seems to me that this has also sort of amped up the importance of collaboration between regulated industry and FDA. I mean that that's always that's always been the case. There's always been this tension because there's a need for collaboration of the really smart and knowledgeable people at companies interacting with really smart and knowledgeable people at FDA. There's always been the tension between that collaborative aspect and the fact that you know FDA are is is the gatekeeper and 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 so there's a there's a tension there. But I I've seen in the most successful instances, great collaboration, even recognizing the very different roles that industry and FDA have to play. But my sense is that that's been brought even into finer focus through the pandemic and the need to respond to the pandemic. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, the, the products that we have distributed, the, the, you know, from diagnostics to the vaccines, uh, Without industry, we, you know, we wouldn't have these. We wouldn't have these products distributed to millions of, of people around the country. I agree. I mean, I think some of the collaborative initiatives over this past year, one, I think, with other agencies to help facilitate it with NIH, with you know, with BARDA, but in, in terms of you know the collaborative work with with industry, you know, all focused on combating this disease from spreading further. It's been it's been humbling. It's been a privilege to work within the agency with several you know leaders within industry to really focus and come together around this this one issue. Okay, so so what? What do you think are the learnings in that context for industry? Because industry is not, you know, the vast majority of industry is not going to be working on more COVID treatments or more COVID prevention. They're, they're going to be working on other products. How can they take advantage of, build on that paradigm to have successful interactions with FDA? What, do you, what are the learnings you'd say to go to industry and say, listen, here's what I heard and saw while I was at FDA, and this is what I think it means for how you want to go forward with the agency. Here's how you can maximize the likelihood of successful interactions and maximize the likelihood of first review approvals and whatever. I mean, what, what would you take from all of that to say to industry? 
Well, I think that my take, what I what I would take to industry is is similar to what I would have taken prior to joining the agency, but from the time of, of being an associate at, at Hogan, refined a bit just over the past year, realizing that there are so many opportunities for constructive, proactive engagement with the agency to take advantage of, you know, grants or, you know, initiatives with, for example, BARDA for, um, or, or CDC or NIH. You know, I think all of that is, is helpful and informative to understand, you know, better understand what the agency um, may be thinking with respect to the development of a, a certain product or um, understanding the science of a certain disease and, you know, what concerns, if any, the agency may have you know, and, and, and how that sort of plays with the governing laws and regulations. Um, I think understanding sort of the nuance is, is really critical. Understanding that that nuance evolves is, is really critical. And having that, that proactive, collaborative sort of tenor with the agency, I've, I, I believe, is, is the most productive, you know, and, and I, I, I feel even stronger after this past year. Okay, so so one of the things that you talked about a couple of times, you've mentioned innovative technology and the differences that that's made. C- can you just tell me a little bit about how you think companies can take advantage of uh, technological innovations to help move their projects forward? Yeah, sure. I, I, some of the technologies have been in development for for years, and you know, and also we've heard of uh, real world evidence and real world data for for years as well. Where I think it, it came sort of together this past year in a, in a way that I think will be helpful for the industry moving forward is it being applied to a specific product area of development or a certain regulatory regulated you know activity or area. So so one the 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 evidence accelerated that 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 was that was initiated through the agency and and, and other um, partners looking at real world data structured data and how it can inform and accelerate you know diagnostic development and so in a constructive productive way and i think that you know we we've, we've seen some great results from that that program just this past year there's also been a lot of you know development with respect to technologies for for surveillance for you know kind of to get at the product supply chain from the drug supply chain you know taking you know realizing against the backdrop of global manufacturing and transparency and visibility to upstream you know i think what's been highlighted through the pandemic is the 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 the, the reliance on global manufacturing and the you know issues with respect to transparency of you know for example the manufacturing supply abroad you know can be an issue because you know obviously approving a, a product or allowing a product through the agency to be um, accessible to patients doesn't it doesn't mean necessarily mean that product can be will be available and we saw that this past year with concerns around shortages and so I think that there are additional technologies that have been developed that are being sort of integrated into you know industry programs in, integrated into how the agency is thinking about the the area for example surveillance from a program programmatic standpoint you know I think so so really technologies from end to end like I, like I was mentioning earlier from from accelerating discovery and development to you know post approval type surveillance 
around supply chain. So, so one of the things that, of course, has been an issue with regard to the pandemic and the restrictions on travel is FDA's ability to conduct inspections, speaking of foreign manufacturing. And I know there's been a lot of talk about the fact that the agency, in many instances, is not obliged as a matter of law to conduct an inspection. And to the extent that they are, they're not obliged to do a physical inspection. But my, my experience has been that it's, it's, it's been a little spotty as to the willingness or ability of the agency to use alternatives to a physical inspection, boots on the ground, in the plant, in whatever country. But what is what is your sense of that? Is are, are we going to just get back to once everyone's traveling again, FDA is going to have a huge backlog of inspections, but they're going to do them and then things are going to return to inspections in wherever? Or do you think that's a place where technology is going to change things? I think that that it's teed up for some some really great change to the program and be careful of what I can and can't share. But the agency, and, and I think it's been it's been shared with um, with with FDA leadership to the to the public already. Uh, the, the the laser focus on modernized technologies to help facilitate remote inspections, virtual inspections. This week, even with with FDA's guidance on remote interactive evaluations, I think is just this next step among, I think, several next steps of how to evolve the inspection program, realizing that, you know, foreign manufacturing is not going to go away. But, you know, if these there are tools, and again, in our toolkit that we can leverage and optimize and adapt to better facilitate and better carry out our mission for oversight of quality for, for these products. And so, you know, I think that there's, there's, there's more to come. I think that's a space that, that there is, um, that the agency within, within um, the Office of Regulatory Affairs, within ORA, within the medical product centers, within, you know, the foods program um, across the agency is, is really thinking about how to maximize some opportunities that, that sort of came through over this past year. So you just you just mentioned food programs and and um, that reminds me I want to ask you about that because while your work here at at Hogan Levels is is primarily focused on drugs certainly was before you left I know that the work you did at FDA wasn't so limited if you will and that you you had a lot of interaction with um, with programs with regard to foods and with regard to medical devices and and certainly as we mentioned at the outset um, what's been going on with regard to the food supply. And the development of different kinds of food products is monumental. Talk for a few minutes, if you would, just about what what do you see coming down the pike there that companies in those industries should be thinking about? Sure. Well, this past year, we saw the the foods program of of, of FDA release the the new era of smarter food safety, and that sort of carries through some innovations through FISMA but really gets at the importance of traceability in the food supply chain. And, and that really was, was, was highlighted this past year, you know, during, during the pandemic. And I, I think again, so carrying forward what our discussion around innovative technologies, you know, there's, there's efforts to utilize, you know, machine learning, AI type technologies to help predict supply chain disruption. And I think that's an exciting area that will be, you know, 
interesting to, to watch and see how industry adapts. I think that there's still a lot on the nutrition innovation side that, you know, Dr. Main and, and the foods program have been working really hard even through this pandemic, you know, continued progress on modernizing the, the dietary supplement and, and, and cosmetic regulatory program, I think. And, you know, lastly, you know, it, 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 this, this brings in both the foods program and the center of, of veterinary medicine is, you know, continued progress on the, the agricultural biotech regulatory sort of scheme. And I'm thinking more specifically on the, the animal ag side with, um, you know, coordination with USDA, you know, progress and push and pull with the right, you know, regulatory framework and, and um, collaborative sort of oversight process. You know, there, there was progress made and then there's still progress to be made of how best to approach it. And I think a space that there's, you know, we've seen a lot of growth um, and interest. It, it's an area that I think will, will continue to, to be a focus for, for the agency. You know, that's a fitting way for us to close out because what you're, what you're talking about is technological innovation and the need for the regulatory scheme to adapt and to adjust to that to that and sometimes that means new regulation sometimes it means new statute but lots of times most often it means applying current authorities to a new context or in a new context and that's that's part of what fda does and and i think at its best fda does it focusing on the science which as you said at the outset of our conversation was one of the things you learned about fda is is not only how much I think what I heard you saying was not only how much they focus on the science, but also how hard it is sometimes to focus on the science with all of the political and other winds swirling about you. But but that what we're really talking about is evolving technology requires evolving regulatory schemes. And I, I know that's what you helped us do at Hogan Levels before you left for your tenure at FDA, and, and now you're back with an even greater ability, a, a better informed ability to um, to help our clients do that. So let me let me thank you not only for taking the time today to chat, but also for coming back to the firm and, and allowing us to continue to grow our capabilities and to work with our clients to help them operate successfully in a highly regulated environment. I look forward to having more conversations with you either on the podcast or when we're back in the office. So thanks. Great. Well, thanks so much. It's been, it's been great to speak with you and um, it's great to be back. That's it for today. If you have further questions for Lowell, I'm going to link his bio in the description and a huge thank you to Phil to take the time today. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our podcast so you're not missing any out of our new upcoming episodes. Thank you for joining us. We are looking forward to have you back in about two weeks when we're talking The Cure.